Okay, yeah. Good evening. Welcome to Laughing Monkey Music Show. Today we've got Billy Sheehan. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I mean, this is this is super, super awesome. You're on. Been a big fan, like everyone, for years. I mean, all your albums uh, I've been listening to for years and years and years. Uh, we're going to talk about, obviously, Talos, the new album, 1985, which is it's fantastic. Like, it's so exciting that it's out. And actually, let's start yeah. there because it's, it's, it's big. People are digging it. It's on the charts even. It's good, you know. Yeah, I'm getting uh, just zillions of comments and emails and messages, uh, way more than I had anticipated. Uh, that's a pleasant surprise. I think it feels like it's finally getting its due. I mean, really. I mean, you guys were kind of ahead of your time, and you didn't get the press because there was no internet. I don't think there were power trios. It really wasn't the time for people to really grab onto it. And maybe everyone's catching up, you know, finally. Well, uh, you know, we we... I, I ended. I left that band in '85, so we, there's not much we could do at that point. And then, I think there is a, a real uh, uh, desire for the way things were in the '80s, as far as bands and music goes. Yeah. It was before the internet, so there was just clubs and bands, and everybody was. Uh, I remember being on Sunset Boulevard and the sidewalks being six deep with people. Just rock and roll was everywhere. Bands played everywhere. It was a great, great time for music and all kinds of music too, not just rock and heavy metal. It was all kinds of stuff going on, and it was a, it was a great time. Well, and, and Tales wasn't really just a rock band. I felt like you had a lot of influence in you too. It wasn't just a, a straight ahead rock band. I don't think so. I mean, do you feel you had a lot? You showed your influences a little bit more than just being rock. Yeah, we uh, we want we uh, want over the line a couple times on a few things. As far as the early days of a copy band, we did Schizoid Man, we did, uh, uh, you know, some adventurous material, not just straight up uh, typical rock. Right. I mean, we did a version of uh, the Tubes, White Punks on Dope as a three piece with the full <laughs> harmony. And, no, and somehow we made up for the lack of, uh, of uh, instrumentation and personnel that the tubes had and well, you got pretty adventurous on some, uh, in some areas, uh, it was kind of cool. So yeah, we were, we, and I'm glad because stylistically that it moves you in a different direction. Instead mm -hmm. of just playing that same thing, we were, we were all over the map. And I think, cause you guys all sang and just each of you play, had an instrument and sang, which your investment in the songs and the band were different. Cause it really was, it wasn't like a, each one had a slot. You guys all had a, a shared silo. So it feels like to me the creative process was so different than a lot of bands. Yeah, well, uh, a lot of young players will ask me today, you know, for uh, advice, if you will, or uh, just uh, some some guidance or whatever, because I've been around for a million years. And, uh, I always tell them, uh, get in a band. One, two, get in a band with songs. <laughs> get in a band with songs that you sing. Yes. And if you run the numbers of the most successful players in the world, that's what almost all of them did. Not all. Absolutes are unattainable. Uh, but, uh, almost everybody. Paul McCartney, got in a band with songs he sang. Geddy Lee, band songs sang. Uh, Lemmy, Sting, uh, yeah. every great bass player. Uh, even Jocko uh, on his first solo record. Uh, had the Isley brothers join him uh, for for a, a track or two. So that doesn't it's suck, really huh? the key, I think, to uh, uh, reaching people. Uh, you'll see America's Got Talent or The Voice or all those uh, shows. They don't. They generally don't have anybody but people that sing. Right. Or strum a guitar. I haven't seen a bass player on that yet. Really? You should, though. I mean, I try featuring a lot of bass players, even acoustic bass players that just sing. I've had on my show that are fantastic. Like, I really try to do well, that. Acoustic players that what? At sing. Basic acoustic oh, bass oh, players that sing. I have, I have an artist that does that. Awesome. That's my point. That's my point. Yeah, I, I support that. I'm like, the guy up there just play bass. No, you need to sing. You need Got to do this stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what was so great. And, and I think and one of the things I think it makes me kind of crazy, I'm sure, I don't know about you, but you always talk, you always hear about the note police and how you, you know, were you overplaying notes, whatever. I don't think it's ever been a concept. I don't think in any bands you've ever been in, it's it's ever been a thing. I think that's just, you play like lead bass and that's the instrument you play and that's it. There's never been a thing. To me, looking in, I know you hear it. You know what I'm saying? It's weird. 
Uh, there's no such thing as lead base. Well, t- well, to me, it sounds like it is because well, you're leading. You're just as strong as it is. My point is like base. People always put base in the back. Your base is always in the front. Uh, on the Van Halen records, the loudest thing on the, in the mix is a bass. Right. On Mo and Motown, the bass is playing more notes than if there even is a guitar in the mix at all. The bass is playing way more. Right. McCartney was the most melodic and moving uh, uh, musician in the Beatles. Uh, a little help from my friends. Bass is all over the place. It works perfectly. And nobody called him a lead bass player. He just played bass because that's what bass is. Bass moves. Unfortunately, guitarists got to a point where they can't play over changes. Right. If a chord changes, they can't continue playing. you got to play one note for them. And then they can solo, 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 solo. The moment you move off that note, they're lost. Right. And in jazz, one of the main things is you got to be able to play over changes. Chord changes play, you adapt as you play. So most guitarists got to a point where you hold an E note while I solo. Right. If you move, you're playing lead bass, man. And it's and I, I just don't agree with it. And uh, it's... Uh, it's a funny thing. Uh, I, people will come to a show, take their iPhone out and record my solo. And there's a couple of reasons for doing a solo. Uh, as far as your, if you were editing a movie together, you would probably put what would be the equivalent of a bass solo somewhere in there. Just uh, in a live show, you take a little break and have a guy do something. It gives the other guys a chance to have a drink and towel off. Right. It also adds to the dynamics of the show. No big deal. I don't have to do a bass solo. Uh, but uh, So they'll take the uh, iPhone and uh, record my bass solo and post that. And then all the comments will be, all he, all he ever does, I don't breathe, eat, or sleep, or uh, or shower, or uh, or drive my car, or, or rake the leaves. That's all I ever do is solo on bass. And then uh, I said, well, for the... Other hour and 55 minutes of the show, uh, I, I wasn't soloing. Right. So it turns into a, it's, it's an odd thing. So for a while, I just said, well, I'll, I'll just stop soloing. And everybody was all upset. Well, where's the bass solo? Well, how come you're not soloing? Bit? Okay, well, I'll go back to it. But I'm just a, a really a, not a believer in anything called even lead guitar the only reason right. I had, they started de- de- determining that it's a lead guitar because there was two and one guy was maybe a little bit better so he would solo while the other guy played rhythm and it was lead and rhythm but you can't have lead who uh you know if you if you have only one guitar is there a lead guitar there had to be there would have to be a follow or rhythm guitar so there's no I, I other that. I, I... on stage there with me it's only one and uh to be with you uh, is a very typical bass uh, line. Uh, uh, all the Mr. Big songs, I would do a little unison or harmony thing with the guitarist as a uh, 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 added thing, like we did in Shy Boy, me and Steve Vai, yeah. and, uh, various things like that. But it's it's a uh, it's only for a musical flavor. Uh, the piano has two hands. The right hand generally is all the melodic and right. uh, the top end of the arrangement. And the bottom hand is our chords and bass lines. And uh, one of my favorite uh, musical experiences when I was very young, I've got the a box set uh, called the Well-Tempered Clavier. Uh, it's a uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. It's uh, three records in a box, uh, seven volumes, seven boxes. So it's 21 records. Wow. Two sides per record, 42 sides of one guy playing the harpsichord. And you hear all the millions of thousands of variations that you can do between what's what the right hand is doing and what the, what the right hand is doing and what the left hand is doing. Uh, and it's quite fascinating to hear, Every time the right hand moves, it changes what you hear. Um, I'm saying right hand. 
Uh, right. Because I'm looking at myself in the, in the video. <laughs> Every time the left hand moves, it changes what you're hearing on the right hand. And that's what a bass does. If, I, if I'm playing in the key of A minor, I go to F, you're, you're still playing A minor, but it sounds completely different. That's why that's such a common key change in a lot of bands, because the guitarist can still solo in the key he's in. You go from A minor to F major, and suddenly the guitar sounds way more interesting than it would if you would have yes. just stayed in A. So anyway, I've over, uh, I've beaten this horse to death, but the, the whole idea of it, of there being anything as such as a lead bass, I, I uh, respectfully disagree with. And uh, uh, there are so many other uh, historical mm-hmm. references to that. Well, I, I get that. I think my point was, I, I was probably poorly worded is, I think I like that. I think all the artists you mentioned do do that. Not enough bass players played enough. So it actually feels like there's two categories, the ones that stay in the back, or the ones that really play like that. Bass player from ACDC is awesome. I love him. What a great player. Uh, a lot of the young players, I say, learn back in black, front to back. What a great bass record. He's playing a lot of very simple notes, but he's old. Oh, no, it depends on the band. It depends on the song. Uh, the bass player from uh, Judas Priest, Ian Hill. Great, great player. Love his playing. Bass player from Accept, uh, Peter Baltus, I think his name was. Fantastic player. So uh, it, it depends on the song. Right, right. I, I see that a lot with um, other aspects of uh, online uh, commentary where, uh, it, you know, if you, if you have a four-string bass, if you don't play a five-string, well, then you're, you're, not, you're not good because I play four-string. Yeah, but five is one string more. Six is two strings more. So you must be way better player to play a six string than you are to play a four string. Complete nonsense. It's, you know, it's a, it's another kind of observation that I that I I notice a lot, and it saddens me that the scope of people's uh, uh, understanding seems uh, seems not to be what it could be. But to each his home. I do think this song to serve the song is always the first thing. So that's probably what it comes down to. Always, anyhow, whatever you play, it's got to serve the song. If you overplay it, it can be too much. You know that's the best part. So, so Mr. Big Wheel, and which was fantastic and probably a, a, an explosion for you. I think it's where people started really, really realizing the talents of, of all you guys collectively. And I think, I mean, the success happened what first Japan, and then they still love you guys so much, and and America slowly followed after the big hit. <laughs> yeah. Again, sorry, I don't mean oh, to be. That's I'm okay. Not being it's okay. I'm not being contentious. I swear, but it's just that wasn't the case. No, we we did go to Japan, and there's this cliche thing that happens, uh, and it, it it would it would drive us crazy because I say, hey hey what, Billy, what's going on? I go, hey, we're going on tour. Japan? Uh, no, we're going to Germany, and then Japan? No, after that we're going to South America, and then Japan. I go, slow down. Back up. Hold on a minute. No, we we're not do, we're not we're not doing it for a right. long time. We'll get there eventually. But this idea that Mr. Big Japan, Japan, Mr. Big, Big Japan, we had a hundred thousand people on the on the Santos Beach outside of of, uh, of Sao Paulo, Brazil. Mm-hmm. In Italy, there was five Mr. Big copy bands at one time. Uh, Germany, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Norway, uh, Scotland, Ireland, England, Portugal, Spain, uh, France, Switzerland, uh, Russia, uh, all over South America, and then Korea, the Philippines, Thailand, uh, Singapore. I get more email from Indonesia than anywhere. So, uh, we love our Japanese friends, and uh, they are, have been awesome to us, as many countries have. But unfortunately, uh, it, it turns into a, a little bit of a cliche, and the cliche is based on uh, 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 somewhat of a falsehood, too. People say, oh, the Western band goes over to Japan. You're automatically, they're going to automatically love you. A lot of bands went over, played one time, never got asked back again, never again. Because yeah. uh, they thought, oh, we can just go up on stage and do whatever we want. They're just going to adore us. Never happen. But they're polite. So the, yeah, hey, they, <laughs> never again. <laughs> so it's a, it's an interesting, uh, 
uh, phenomenon. But we we love the Japanese people, and it's been so enriching to be able to go there uh, so many times. But like I said, we uh, there's so many other places we've we've been that people uh, sometimes overlook. Uh, we uh, especially in, in Europe as well. It's it's uh, it's quite awesome. Done some great. We played in the club the Beatles played in in Hamburg, Germany. And when we played there and uh, we've done uh, some great shows in England, some great, uh, great uh, situations there. And as an American uh, musician that really was inspired by the Beatles to play in England is, is quite awesome. And, uh, oh. and my strings come from England. They're Roto Sound. So <laughs> that's important to it. That was some crazy. Well, yeah, see, it's a learning experience for me. I will just was like all the live albums. There's a ton of live albums all from Japan. So it just feels like yeah, there's a reason for that. We, we, we uh, the Japanese label, uh, once we got done with a the record, uh, they were they were selling so well that they wanted something again before the next record came out. So we would record a live show and uh, and they'd have that. It was their doing. It wasn't it wasn't our our doing. Atlantic Records didn't have anything to do with it. As yeah. a matter of fact, the first live record we did in Japan, we were on the Rush tour in America, and uh, we got the word that Japan would like a live record. So we had our front of house mixed mixer, Brad Maddox was his name, uh, had a DAT tape, digital audio tape. Remember those? I do. And. Uh, and he just had a feed off the live console. So for $7.95, we bought a DAT tape, put it in, hit record. And that was the live album, the first live album. We sold, and I think we sold uh, over 500,000 units in Korea. Wow. And, uh, and our, our budget for the record was $7.95. So. That's got to be the biggest profit ever made. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> of an album ever. That's fantastic. But that sells a lot, though. I mean, live music and a good band, you know, you don't have to do a lot to it. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's sad now to see a lot of bands go out with uh, laptops and uh, 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 tracks. Yeah. I, I remember our first, uh, we had a new sound person, and uh, they came into our rehearsal, and we're rehearsing, and they go, we stopped for a minute. They go, so uh, what are you going to run your tracks through? We go, what tracks? You're, tra you're, you're playing with tracks, right? What about your vocals? I go, we sing. That's that's what we do. Yeah. We, in that same rehearsal, we were singing, uh, just myself, Pat Torpy, and Paul Gilbert. We usually would rehearse before Eric would come down from San Francisco, just to make sure everything was done when he got there, makes yeah. things go faster, figure out all the parts and figure out what we're doing, what songs we're playing for an upcoming tour. We had, um, it might've been Tommy Lee and another guy from a band of similar thing. You know, they, they'd open the door while we're, while, while we're playing to go, what are you, what are you guys using for tracks? And I said, nothing, we're singing. And they're like, come on. So we do green thin and sixties mine. Here we go. And we'd sing the harmony part. And, uh, finally they believed us. Uh, but, but, uh, so you, I think I, I understand if uh, there's a complex uh, instrumentation and or orchestral things or extra keyboard things, you might need something like that. Right. But, but as far as actual singing and playing, uh, I, I know uh, Eddie Trunk had a, made a point on his show uh, about a couple of bands that were doing such. I went to see Rod Stewart recently. There wasn't any tracks. And the band was actually playing and he was really singing and he kicked ass. He sounded great. It was amazing. And uh, it was pretty, pretty cool. Pretty cool. And Tr Cheap Trick was the opener. Amazing. And they sounded fantastic. No tracks. Great. Tom Peterson killing. I don't know what's going to happen. I think because the example was, I know we're talking about the laptop band couldn't play whatever because laptops, we got to get past that. I think everyone's got to start playing live. The the Instagram feeds with the pictures of your guitars and your notebooks on, on the beach. People got to start playing. You're not going to fill a club. You need to just play music and sing without auto tune and just play. You know, I'm hoping yeah. that's going to fall out. That feels like it's an image. It's a it's a media hype of, of what people want to be. They're not just not well, playing. It is, it's true. Somebody's going to pull their iPhone out, and if you're a little off key that day, so 
warm up your voice before the show. <laughs> Make sure you're not off key. And uh, and I croak out my lead vocals and uh, or harmony vocals, and I work at it. I went I uh, I went to this great voice coach. His name was Ron Anderson. He passed away sadly recently, but he's the guy when Bono blows his voice out on tour, they fly Ron in to fix him. He was the the guy. He did oh, wow. Ozzy and Bjork and Axel and everybody went to Ron Anderson. And what a difference it makes, man! Get somebody really? to help you know, you know, It's unreal. I mean, actors go to coaching before they do their moving. Boxers, MMA fighters, everybody gets a, you get some advice from somebody that knows what they're doing. And a good vocal coach is really, really a, a great asset. He helped me immensely. And my, my range went up, my accuracy. I always sang. And even back in the old days, we didn't even have monitors. We would just turn the PA system a little bit so we could hear it on stage. And I got tasted oh, wow. then, and we're doing Crosby, Stills, and Nash at Three Dog Night. And it's on. So it can be done. So I just uh, I just encourage people to. I'd rather hear anything, even a, even a mistake. I'd rather hear a mistake and just know it's live. I like that. I like the, the, the realness of it. You know what I mean? That's why you go to a show and you're not playing a record. If I want to hear the record, yeah. I'll just listen to the yeah. record. Exactly. Yeah. It's going to be, I, I, when I'm playing live, there's going to be wrong notes. There's going to be mistakes. There's going to be missed cues. I didn't get to the mic in time for my vocal. And I like that too. I was really a fan of some very early live records. Uh, the first one was uh, having a rave up with the Yardbirds. Uh, it was their, I think it was their first album. And they, uh, one side was their songs that you knew, uh, uh, Heart Full of Soul, I'm a yep. Man. Uh, and the other side was the live versions. And it was unbelievable because they just, they just went nuts. And <laughs> the, the, I'm a Man was, uh, you know, about 10 minutes long. And it's unbelievable playing. And Paul Samuel Smith on bass was killing back and forth with Jeff Beck, uh, you know, uh, playing. Uh, just incredible. And it was so exciting. But it wasn't, it wasn't perfect. No. But, I, but it took me a long time. And it wasn't until many, many years later that I listened to it and noticed anything that could be referred to as an imperfection. But still, I love those parts. And then the Stones came out with Got Live If You Want It. I heard later on they didn't like that record. It was a compilation of a couple different shows and even a right. couple of live tracks that they faked audience on. But uh, wow, what an exciting, oh, incredible record. And there's mistakes and and wrong uh you know wrong notes and whatever but oh it's it's just beautiful but that's why bootleg live bootleg things are always fun back in the day i'm not talking like now napster level i'm talking about because that you knew it wasn't because it got to a certain point in the 80s where the live things were just an audience and then they're i'm just gonna go in and hit a few things just punch me in for a few vocal things here next you know it's not really a live album yeah you know you roll back to the 60s you know you're getting a truck even zeppelin they're just they got the mobile studio they're setting up the mics you get what you get. You're hearing some missed notes. I love that, you know? Yeah, me too. And I've got a huge, I got over two terabytes in my iTunes. Uh, oh, no. well, well curated. <laughs> all, the, all the cover art, all the titles, <laughs> everything is right. And uh, back in the day, in the uh, late 80s and 90s and early 90s, we, uh, there were some great bootleg shops. Oddly enough, in Japan, there was one. And they were so on it. We'd do a night at the Budokan, get up the next day, and I'd have a fan walk me down to the bootleg shop because I couldn't find my way. They're so sweet. I love them. <laughs> I get there. And in front of the shop, they've already got a display of last night's show on CD with cover art for sale. Wow. That's crazy. And I, I loved it because I wanted a recording of the show. So they would always let us take whatever we wanted because they're selling our stuff and they felt, you know, you could Make close them down properly. <laughs> so I went in. I got some amazing bootlegs. Uh, all the Robin Trower, the the record with uh, Day of the Eagle. All those songs played live with some different arrangements and different lyrics too. Hendrix, uh, the Band of Gypsies rehearsals. Uh, just uh, uh, the uh, Deep Purple. Uh, was it Made in Japan? Their uh, live record. Yeah. That was a compilation of five shows, and I got all the other five shows from Holy that tour. Pretty amazing. A lot of a lot of versions of songs that they didn't use. There's an Ian Pace drum solo that is 
one of the best drum solos I've ever heard. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't on Made in Japan. So I, it was really interesting to, to go back and hear imperfections. I got the, uh, the birds demo for Eight Miles High. Wow. We one of my favorite songs ever. I love that 12-string guitar. I'm a 12-string fanatic to this day. That compressed tone of that 12 strings, unbelievable. First record I ever bought, Eight Miles High by The Birds. And uh, you should hear the demo. It's a catastrophe. Is it? <laughs> the, the demo's... <laughs> but they were, they were fleshing it out. Uh, so to hear that, and a lot of young players and young writers, I'd like to to let them know about that because they think, well, I got to write a song and it's got to be perfect from the very beginning. Fabulous. And what if I write a song and it isn't great? I should probably quit. No, no, everybody just you slug through it. It's awful. You blah, blah lyrics. You play wrong notes. Next step, next step, next step. And you've got yesterday by the Beatles, you know, so all this stuff happens, but it's a, it's a, it's a very uh, uh, enlightening thing to hear how a lot of these songs were began and then knowing how they ended up. The demo process is the best for me when I hear those, because you hear it's like, it was a different song, different words that you're used to. The whole thing's just totally different. You're like, wait a minute. I know that riff from another song. Like I can't think of some artists recently. I heard their stuff. I'm like early on. I'm like, I'm hearing all these riffs that have eventually evolved to other albums of yours. Like it was like a rough demo early stuff. You're hearing it in everywhere. It's, and it's great to hear. Exactly. I got the, uh, the Boston, demo for their first record and uh, the title of it i remember i had it on vinyl back in the day but i found i i all my vinyl went missing so but i found it on cd in germany or japan I mean, there's another bootleg shop in germany as well that was quite great uh but the title of the record is we found it in the trash can honest and somebody found their original demo tape in a trash can and that was it it's almost identical to the record the sound is not quite as uh, dynamic, but amazingly, they that demo was very much what they what, how that record sounded. So it goes both ways. You hear some demos that really have it together. I had the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway demos and rehearsals. What? Uh, unbelievable! Oh, uh, that are you a Genesis fan? Huge. I got a huge vinyl collection. I'm a huge yeah, yes. Right. I'm a huge yes and Genesis fan. Of all the yeah. versions of them, I, right. uh, both of those guys, and, and Jethro Tull, actually, uh, it is like no version yeah. I don't like. You know what I mean? Because I, I, I love when an artist can do a different album, a different lineup. I love if an album, they do an album that's totally different, it sucks. Good for them, because you're an artist. Yeah. It's, you're doing chance. something. You're being creative. If you want to do the same albums, that's cool. That's that's you're, you're an artist. But if you want to do something different, more power to you. Man. But I the, the Lamelys on a Broadway uh, demos and... Uh, and tons of other live stuff, but uh, pretty, pretty great, pretty awesome. So many brilliant pieces of music right there. I mean, there's just so, huh. Genesis is the name is a perfect thing. There's just so much from that time period from them. It's like the Beatles of Prague. I mean, there's just, I mean, the Beatles, I love the Beatles, the first albums, but here's a funny thing. Wait a minute, I'll see if I can get if you can hear me. It's just my little bass drill practice now, but but you remember, you remember. Mm-hmm. You remember that song? Yeah. Attack of the Giant Hogweed? Yeah. You're familiar with it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. But isn't that funny? Mm-hmm. I get that a lot. Yeah. I don't know, <laughs> but I remember I, I read uh, one of the Van Halen uh, biographies, I think by Greg Renoff, a great book, great author too, uh, that Eddie went into Tower Records because they were called Genesis before they were Van Halen. And then he right. saw in the bin was, there's another yeah. Genesis. Did he take that record home and get that? Who knows though? You never know. Or he heard it, didn't even know he heard it. You know, you never know. It's a yeah, lot of you things, know. you know. Yeah, it could have been completely, but it doesn't matter. Eddie is still the, the greatest, and we love him oh, no matter yeah. what. And uh, Did you ever get to do anything, like meet him and like just 
play with them at all? Like on a, yeah, we toured I, with them. Well, that's how you did the, the Vihan tour. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we did uh, about 30 shows. I went to his house with him and his brother uh, uh, in recent years, relatively recent. And we jammed. We talked about doing something. He, We talked about doing something together since 1980, really. And what a wonderful guy. He's just a what a what a dreadful loss for the music world. He's and for uh, Wolfie to lose a dad like that. Uh, to me, that's what I see. I see everybody back off. He lost his dad. I love Eddie and I miss his music. Oh, but, I, Wolfie's been killing it lately too. He's so great. Right? I, oh, I totally know. Really, and he really wants to be himself too. He's not trying to be his dad. And his beautiful thing. He, he's he's a good kid. Uh, I played I with Wolfie. <clears throat> But not music. We were coming home from the Jason Becker benefit. Yeah. And Ed asked me if, if I wanted to fly with him. So I went and Wolfie was there. He wanted to sleep. Ed wanted to sleep. And Wolfie was a little kid. I mean, a little tiny kid. And so I got some paper and a pen and a flight attendant. And we were drawing animals and doing number games and words. <laughs> and Ed would look up once in a while like, keep going, bro. I'm getting a good sleep over here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so because of that, I could, I could, it's, it's a joke really, but I can say I'm the only guy that's played with every member of Van Halen. <laughs> I played with Wolfie, but I played with Gary Sharon, with Sammy, Dave, of course, jam with Ed and Al, and played with Michael a couple times. Just did a uh, jam with Sammy Hagar and Michael Anthony uh, in Chicago at a private show. So I'm the only guy that's played with every member of Van wow. Halen. That's pretty good. Well, you. You know, they're all great. You got Dave during his best period. You got, you know, Dave was, had to split voice vocals that no one was really hip to, the way his voice used to split. That was the best time for him. Sammy's still a fantastic singer. I mean, and Michael, yeah, great singer. Sammy's right on. He, Talk he about knows. a singing bass player, too, uh, Michael, right? So great. Really. And a wonderful guy. Probably one oh, of the yeah. nicest. He's, he's in the Greg Bissonette class of fine, wonderful, nice human beings. And Greg, Greg is the, is the benchmark for me. He's such a great guy. And there's a lot of people I know in that, in that stratum and uh, very, very grateful for it. I, I, I think Greg isn't up there a little bit bigger too. I wish Greg was a little more known. You know, he's a great player too. I think, you know, publicly, you know what I'm saying? Commercially, he's not as big as, he, as I think he should be as a player. He's, he's playing with Ringo. I'm saying, you know what I'm saying? Like that's a music people know. Music people know the drummers. Oh, he's that guy. But like I like I know your name. Like people that don't even listen to music will know like you are Steve Vai. People should know like his name like that. I'm saying that. Oh, no, I say to me, of course, yeah, yeah. He's certainly, but he's, you know, some people are more uh, uh, just it's just kind of the way nature goes. But every I think he's fantastic. Know. I think he's fantastic. I love him. Oh, know? he's great. He's really great, and he is hilarious. Is he? And he is really one of the finest human beings, the sweetest, giving honest, genuine, just fantastic. Myself, Steve and Greg, and Brett Tuggle, who was the Eat em and Smile keyboard player, we uh, we still, uh, sadly we lost Brett recently, but uh, we, me, Greg, and Steve still keep in touch. And now you should hear the stories. It's pretty hilarious. I'll bet you guys do. You guys had good chemistry right out of the gate, too. So that was, you know, fantastic sound. You know, coming, you guys had a great chemistry come out of the gate as a band, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I've gone back and played with Steve a bunch, done some tours with him on a solo tour. And I just did his camp, the Vi Academy. It was quite a, quite a great experience for everybody. And uh, Tommy Emmanuel joined us, if you've seen him play guitar. He's ridiculous. He is so good. Us mere mortals here. He's uh, so great. And what a great guy. He's hilarious. He's so, so fantastic. It makes that much better when, when everyone you love is so nice. You just want to hug them. Like, it's just that much better when your favorite artist is great. And you know what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes you don't even want a, a chance catching them on a bad day and spoiling your, uh, your view of them. I was in L.A. years ago and I took a young lady to dinner. And we're waiting for our car for the valet thing. And there's some old man standing next to me and a little little old guy. And I wasn't even paying much attention. I looked back again, and it was Jimmy Stewart. And I thought, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> I just thought, I let him go. Because he would have said, well, leave me alone, young fella. And I would have been pissed. I, I, he wouldn't have. He's a sweet guy. But I just thought. And then uh, years earlier, I was in uh, playing with Talos in Buffalo. And Lou Reed was in town. And we're a huge Bowie, Lou Reed, Mata Hoople, that right. 
or that glam thing that came off for a while, about 74 or so, 75. And uh, uh, we, uh, uh, Louie was in town and there was one hotel most bands stayed at. It was before everybody really was like, you know, all over anybody that had any fame. Right. It was still kind of an open thing. And I, I called the Holiday Inn. I go, oh yeah, can I speak to Lou Reed, please? And I go, and all of a sudden the phone is ringing. I'm like, holy shit, they voted. And the guy goes, hello? <laughs> I, go, I go, hello, Lou? He goes, uh, yeah. I go, oh, I'm so sorry to bother you, man. My name's Billy. I got a band here in town. I want to invite you out. And we just want to say we're huge fans of you, man. Sorry we can't come to see your show tonight. He goes, oh, wow, thanks a lot, man. That was really nice. That's great. If I get off early, I'll be sure to come out to your show. And I'll, All right, thanks so much. What a pleasure. Okay, nicest guy ever. It was so great. Never came down, but no, I but know. that's cool. That's cool. When you're done, it's impossible to do those kind of things. But it was a wonderful guy. I think, and I'm going to say, two people I met at once, and actually Steve I ties into it in, when I was in college and it was for recording. I went to, as I was saw in the mall, Eric Clapton was in the mall in Atlanta. He had like a huge bodyguard. It's like beautiful, like model-like woman. It totally stood out in the mall. Like, he, like you know, he's a, and Clapton's a much smaller guy than you'd think because you always think people are huge. Like, I know you're a tall guy, but Clapton's a, a much shorter than I thought he was. He had like a frilly jacket on. He stood out. He was in a sneaker store. Like he was in Foot Locker. He went into Foot Locker. And it was the weirdest thing seeing that. So I went and I brought a tape. I went my last of my money. I grabbed a tape from the record store. I said, and I went in and I said, I introduced myself. And I, said, and I shook his hand. I said, could you sign this, please? And um, he's like, yeah, no. And I was crushed. But I respectfully said, okay. But then I was like, well, that's how it goes. But then I worked, for, I interned for Relativity and In Effect Records, you know. And that's when Steve I's album came out. The his, his biggest one. So he came into town and he met with all the, the big wigs. But he sat with all of us interns on the floor. First time I ever saw him, I had like a vegetarian pizza. And he had a beer with everybody and hung out with all the interns. So from that Great. point on, that was the bar for how people should be treated from Steve I. That was it from there. And that was in 19... What, yeah, 19 Steve, uh, Passion Warfare. That was it. Like I was like, that's it. That's how people you talk to people. I agree. Yeah. Uh, uh, Steve is also in that strata of people that, you know, this, they're really care a lot about their fans and, and, and he's just he's right and the energy from him just like being around him you just felt like a calmness there's just something about steve when you're around him that that you know and just, very positive person yeah that's pretty very what positive. it is yeah it so was... we did the uh eric clapton crossroads festival with me and steve did it but the, uh it's just a youtube video over we're all playing each other guitars and stuff i'll have to look it up yeah <laughs> and uh yeah look up steve Vai on crossroads it's hilarious and so i met uh eric then and he was very kind and then i was with my wife in in london in the middle of uh some little square area where they got a lot of shops and there he was just kind of wandering around lost <laughs> and i went up to him to talk and i could tell he was like oh but but eric it's me billy he's like, oh <laughs> he was okay so but i could but it is really true when you're out in public sometimes depending on your level of notoriety and that varies from where you are uh you know in me in indonesia i got to be careful where i go because it's 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 a lot of people or japan or some other places not so much anymore but back in the 90s for sure so it it can get overwhelming get out get out of hand also sometimes so and the problem is sometimes when you sign one thing other people see you right people don't even know who you are they want to come over and get who, who is he? I don't know. Make him sign it. And it, 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 it so it can be, you know, you got to smile your way through it. And I, I, I've never been in a situation where I snapped and said, hold on. I can see know. it happening. I can see it being too much too. And like, for like, even with that, I wasn't mad at him. I was just bummed out because I was like, I was a student. I was like my last $10. <laughs> and I already had like the album and I bought the cassette just to have him sign it. And it was like the night he was playing the Omni. So like, it wasn't like he was like being discreet about it. Like it was like, you're literally in a place where, Everyone's going to see you. You might as well just have a strobe light on you. And I also think he just, that was from the time he was, you know, the drugs were really bad. And I think his son, oh, yeah. time his son died. So he was in a really bad space afterwards. So it wasn't like, I'm like, oh, bad about him. Funny. Yeah. But, I know. I just, you know, it's just different. For me personally, if, if I can't be in the mood, I don't know, I stay inside. <laughs> or I'll put my hat down and walk through the wall. <laughs> well, and funny. you played with a lot, though. So actually, um, with Mr. Big, is there is, is there any truth to the rumors that you guys might do something at some point? We're we'd love to. I'm not sure what. Um, we uh, went out with a, a drummer 
after Pat passed away, Matt. the drummer that played with us on stage while Pat was with us, because Pat couldn't do the kid anymore. We brought a guy in to play drums. So I Pat, Pat. and uh, uh, Matt Starr, just a great, yep. great, guy, great drummer. Uh, but we went out with just Matt after Pat passed away. And uh, Matt is amazing. It has nothing to do with Matt. No, I don't. But it was just wasn't the same because Pat wasn't there, you know. So we just said at that point, that was years ago. We just said, ah, let's just leave it. And uh, but we, you know, we're talking a little bit again recently about, you know, maybe at some point we could go out and do something. We don't know what. Uh, uh, so we'll, we'll we'll possibly see about it. But we're all good friends. And we're all talking. Uh, Eric's out on tour. Paul's always working. And I'm I'll, I'm I'm here and there too. So, you know, I love that band everybody in it and uh that was our that was an amazing uh adventure is, I, I always tell people have a have a number one hit someday because it changes your life completely it's pretty great it's pretty awesome you know i'm gonna say i had eric on like last year and he was telling some funny stories i know eric always has some crazy stories but one of the best things he told me was very touching and still to this day he says um you guys hadn't spoken for a while it was probably the impetus for, for like you guys getting back together at one point him reaching out he was looking for a base for his kid and you were like like a left-handed bass or something. I think you went and got the bass format and you sent it to him. And he's telling me in the story, he's like, yeah, I hadn't heard of him. He goes, so get the tape in. He goes, I get the bass for my kid. The kid's playing. I'm trying to talk to my kid about this. You got this from Billy. And his kid's like, shh, 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 And his kid's shutting him down because he's listening to you on VHS. And he's, hear- <laughs> and he's hearing your voice. And it's like, it just really just kind of hit home. So that whole moment was such a, a great thing to hear from him in that yeah, story. Yeah. It was just such a touching moment. Yeah, I love yeah. that. We had great times in that band, uh, and our worst times were generally better than most bands' good times. So, yeah. so uh, you know, we uh, we we uh, butted heads on a few points, but generally, we, we it was like a and there were never any drug alcohol problems in the band, which made life simpler. Right, and uh, it was it was a great thing, man. We had some and we had some laughs. My God, we get together now to tell stories, and. Uh, a lot of times when I do an interview like this, people say, oh, tell us a story. And I go, it's, I can, but it's kind of more performance art. I need a glass of red wine, a couple maybe, and uh, sitting around a table, and then the story <laughs> starts coming hot and heavy. So it's kind of like, it's kind of good that you can't really document them in video. They're going to try someday. You can't really videotape or write them down because you lose so much in the written translation. Oh, the story, yeah. But uh, yeah, there's, uh, and I, I, I get asked a lot about doing a book. Uh, I may someday, I may someday, but that would be cool. But I, I'm always worried about how am I going to relate this story in print where it got, I got to kind of stand up and, yeah, the guy came over. And, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's kind of a, a, a oh, performance art. It's funny. It is. It could be a long story. I mean, yeah, what he, Eric told me one. He said he actually felt bad. He said um, he was going through a period where he was going up in the air and he was spitting water up in the air and it was hitting like the drums and the cymbals and the, and the guy did the drums was getting kind of mad at him for messing it up and stuff. And he was doing it one day and he spit the water for something and you came out and you slipped on it. And, oh, and you yeah, fell. Yeah. And it was a big hush yeah. over everybody. Yeah, that was great because it's the only time I ever fell on stage. I was like, wow, finally, after 30, well, 30 years then, 50 years now, <laughs> after 30 years he I wasn't found- recounting as a funny story he was just like yeah he goes he was telling me his whole thing about the spitting thing and he goes and then well and then this happened and i didn't know i felt you know then you know he shared <laughs> that one and he told this story about um paul where the opening band was you guys would come out dressed like this the sleepy time guy with the candle and the and the long sleep dress or whatever and the opening band grabbed his little sleep dress thing and tied it up over his head on the stage to Paul, and he couldn't untie it, so it was like his underwear on stage and stuff. Those are oh, some stories. I remember yeah. something vaguely like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah so you guys are. We had a ride. It was it was great. And uh, touring it. with Rush, uh, that was just an amazing thing. I was never, and I gotta gotta uh, uh, preface this uh, because so many people take it the wrong way. Uh, I was never a Rush fan, only because there's only 24 hours in the day. I'm playing every night of the week, doing yeah. 21 nights in a row one time, three full shows in one day. And people think, yeah, did you hear the new record by this? Or hear the new No, I don't have time to listen to records. I, I'm playing all the time. So I never was a Rush fan, more just because 
I didn't have time to sit down and listen to their records. Some bands I did at certain times of my life. We right. spoke about Genesis earlier and some things, but there's just so many hours in a day and you can't, there's a billion bands. You. It's getting worse. So I didn't know much about them. Uh, and uh, when we opened up for them, I got to hear them every night. And I absolutely Lovely. became a, a fan. A really, really just a great band and the nicest people you could ever imagine. Really sweet people. And so touring with them was uh, was just perfect. You're in a huge arena. There's perfect catering set up. You got a giant dressing room. It's just, it doesn't get any better. It's really, really great. And, and well, it does get better if you, it's if you're rushed because you're headlining <laughs> for sure. But they were just so nice to us, and we had so many great times with them and so many great storytelling moments. And it was a, uh, it was a, uh, it was a wonderful thing. Really, I, uh, losing Neil was uh, was devastating for all of us, for everybody, I think, in the world. It was a terrible thing, and uh, we love those guys completely. It's hard. Everyone's going now. I mean, yeah. and, 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 you know, I mean, obviously you guys lost Pat, and then, and, and actually you had, and then recently when you just did Talos again, you lost Phil, you know? Yeah, that was, uh, the whole thing is bittersweet because we're so happy with our response to the record, and Phil sang his ass off. He was so great. What a great performance. And, uh, and then we lost him soon after the record was done. And uh, he was at the, I was in Nashville uh, in my home studio. He was in Toronto in a studio with our engineer, Russ. And we would use Zoom or FaceTime like we are now. And I'd have myself, uh, myself Phil and um, Russ on camera for talkback. Then we had special software that would deliver to my music computer, my playback system, Real time, real time. Oh, yeah. yeah, unbelievable. I don't know how I can't. I can't understand the physics of how that works at all. But it's in real time, and so I could sit there and produce the vocals while Phil was at the mic, and Phil would step up to the mic, hit it, nail it. Great, 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 great. Once in a while, though, I noticed he's a little scatterbrained, which caught my attention a little bit, but it wasn't any big thing. Like he sing the wrong lyric. Go back. Okay, let's try it again. The, the lyric is so and so. Okay, sing the wrong lyric again. Yeah. Cool. Cross out whatever you got there. Write in the new lyric. Sometimes that helps with the singer. And so, and so finally, you get it. So I realized after the record was finished because we didn't know how bad it was. Well, what time was this? Because I know he did another band too. He recorded um with with Don from uh from Black Sheep. That lips turn blue. Getting yeah, it down. Uh, the time frame, but it was at the end of us. Re- the only way I would know it is at the end of us doing the record. I don't know if it's spring, yeah. summer, fall, or winter, or whatever. But uh, but anyway, we were um, we were. Uh, I lost my train of thought. Oh, so we. Uh, he knew we didn't. He knew that his cancer had come out of remission, and he knew he was in trouble. We didn't know. We knew he had experienced something, but we thought he was okay now. And uh, so now I look back and him walking up to that mic and delivering like he did, knowing what he knew, shouldering the burden of knowing I might be in trouble here, makes it all the more spectacular. So his, his performance on 1985 is great for many reasons. The courage he had to just get in there, and hit it, nail it, even though I don't know if I could do that. You know, if I'm playing some record and, you know, be, you know, as I'm, okay, let's do the bass parts. You know, oh, by the way, and somebody gives me some horrible news. Geez, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's amazing. I couldn't do it. I can't function with anything. You know, my world's yeah. got to be right to do anything. I I heard um, he did a band, Lips Turn Blue, um, with Don from from Black Sheep. And that's how, I thought that was his last album. So when I heard this come out, I was like, oh, another album that he did yeah, it was kind of a weird thing i don't know when he did that and the guy that had the record wanted to get it out quick before our record and uh, you know it was I, I didn't know see I, I didn't know all that part i just knew that i heard the album i heard who he was and what he's from and i was like oh this is excellent feels great I'm, i was so glad to hear him do something and that hadn't been out yet so i didn't even know so to me yeah, from the outside i just see him do one album and oh my god there's one of the extra bonus as a fan he gets to do a talus album too it's great you know for yeah. legacy at least you know that's a good album yeah. well he's he was quite a prolific songwriter and quite a uh uh, uh just a great uh 
overall, everything. <laughs> Wonderful guy, great performer, singer, writer. Uh, so uh, it was a terrible loss. And uh, we're going to try to do a show if we can. I'm not sure how we're going to do it. we got a couple singers that are. Uh, That's always the best way to do it. Fill, fill very big shoes. Yes. Uh, so we'll see what happens. I, ho- I hope we can. I just want to ask you two things. You got kind of so anything with Sons of Apollo coming up? That's another group you no, fantastic. Uh, I think the individual guys are Mike's out touring, Jeff is out touring, Derek has a couple of other projects. So we'll see. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, but new Winery Dogs is done. That's what I'm going to say about them. Almighty Winery Dogs. Really yeah, Winery Dogs is hype. done. It's. Uh, I spoke with Eddie Trunk the other day. And I know Richie secretly played him the record. He, <laughs> He loved it. So we're so he's a good barometer for us because he, he's yeah. been very instrumental in helping us and also was the initial seed planted for Mike and I to go talk with Richie. And we're glad we did. But the new record is done. The album cover work is done. The credits are done. It's mixed, mastered. They're booking the tour. I saw some dates already. I can't announce them because the promoters, if you announce it before they do, they get all mad. So I can't say anything, but there's I respect that. And we're just, just as a fan, I'm just happy to hear this. I'm yeah, excited. thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's uh it's uh gonna be a, a, a good year next year, I think. I love playing with the winery dogs. Uh the initial version of Talus, the one that uh seemed to last them long. There are about nine versions of Talus, actually, by actual count. Uh uh we we're a three piece band, so I got used to that three-piece thing, and uh, Grand Funk Railroad's Easy Top, the three-piece yep. band. So, and Winery Dogs is really cool as a three-piece. I look out, and it's easy for me to see Richie and Mike. If there's another guy or two other guys in there. I got to figure out who I'm looking What's going at. Going on, kind of see both of them in one in one scene, and uh, and on you know Mike on drums. We got this bass and drum ESP where we're locked together. It's really great, and Richie sings is ass off he sings like a bird he is so good and he's not using a pick anymore His not? it's unbelievable he is a he is a madman and the fact that you guys well are did some stuff in mr big together so adding mike to it is fantastic but yeah like richard what do you do is he just did the album what 50 songs or something like he is such a maniac of songwriting yeah yeah, yeah and they're good they're good songs he's not a bad they're not like throw no, no. just do it he's a good songwriter yeah he's he's really excellent so but we're looking forward to that. New Winery Dogs. Right on. That's a, that's a beautiful awesome, thing. Well, thank you. We'll end on that. I want to thank you. This is awesome. Thanks for giving me some time today. Right on. Thank you, Sean. I, uh, like I said,